Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number 34. I am your host, Steve Oki. This episode is the season finale for season three, and it features an excellent conversation between Greg Hillis and myself. Greg is an associate professor at Bellarmine University, and we had the opportunity this past summer to speak at the Catholic Theological Society of America's annual meeting. Greg and I were on a panel together, along with Annie Selleck of Boston College, and uh, Greg and I were able to find a time to get together and talk about how his going to Bible College for one year eventually led to his coming into a career in theology. We talked about the gifts and challenges of interchurch marriages, and about his interest in and connection to Thomas Merton and to the Abbey of Gethsemane, uh, which are near his university in Kentucky. Uh, he also talked about his Thomas Merton tattoo and why he would canonize Jose Bautista of the Toronto Blue Jays. So it's a pretty great episode. I hope you enjoy. As this is the end of season three, we'll be on hiatus, but we'll be back in the spring with some excellent new conversations. We may have some exciting big news between now and then, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, thanks to those who have gone to leave reviews on iTunes. It's a big help to the podcast, and if you have not done so, I hope you will. But you can always also leave comments on the blog. You can talk to us on Twitter. The blog is at, at Daily Theo. I'm at Stephen Oakey. And thank you so much for listening. Today for the Daily Theology Podcast, I'm here with Greg Hillis, who is an Associate Professor of Theology at Bellarmine University. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So the first question I like to start people with is, how did you come to do theology? Well, it's kind of a long and strange story, but I grew up in, a, in an evangelical Protestant home. Mm. I wasn't a wonderful teenager. <laughs> um, I was fairly... I wouldn't say rebellious, but I wasn't overly kind with my parents. Mm -hmm. And my parents basically came to the conclusion that maybe I could use a year at Bible college. <laughs> um, and I believe my father's words were, we won't pay for anything else unless you do a year at Bible college. All right. So I sort of took that and was like, I could do a year anywhere. I ended up you, going... You sound like you're going to prison. Like. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was... It, well, I viewed it as that. Huh. Yeah. So I went, I went to this Bible college, this Rocky Mountain College in Calgary. I'm not sure if it's still there or not. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had a professor there who taught me church history. Uh, his name was Charles Nienkirchen. He was somebody who was deeply steeped in the tradition, not somebody who was your typical, I don't know if there is a typical Bible college professor, but he wasn't, he wasn't <laughs> it. And all of a sudden, as I'm studying in his classes, which I really didn't even want to be there to take, yeah. the whole thing just became like a new world to me. Mm. Like the, the study of church history, the reading of these people that I'd never heard of, like Origen and Tertullian and Luther. And, you know, I, I just didn't know anything about it. And so that's how I got interested in it. I ended up meeting my wife there and I ended up, doing a full degree there actually mm -hmm. and then I went on to do another undergrad somewhere else 
but from that moment, from taking his class on, I got interested in doing theology. Did you have any interest in religion beforehand? Not really. No, I had decided in high school that I was going to be a professor of Russian literature. Okay. I read, I read, yeah, I read Crime and Punishment in 11th grade and loved it and was like, yeah, I'm going to do this. Huh. And so then when I got bit by the theology bug, that was when I was like, no, I'm going to actually do this. Okay. And from that moment on, that was my, that was my goal. It's interesting that like, even in that, your trajectory was professor of some sort. Well, fifth grade... I remember sitting in Mr. Johnson's class and the thought went through my mind, oh, I want to do what he's doing. Mm. I want to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. And so that was really, from fifth grade on, I knew that that I wanted to teach. Mm -hmm. And it just, my goals became a little more lofty from elementary school teacher (laughs) to college professor. But I wouldn't say lofty, it's just more schooling, yeah. actually. I think it's more lofty to be an elementary school teacher, to be honest. <laughs> so I think it's one thing that's harder. Yes, right? yeah. So there's something about teaching that captivated me. Yeah. So when you talk about how you were a struggle as a teenager, I mean, were you, like, bad at school? Were you, like, a, were you the kind of student that teachers don't look forward to having, or? No, I was decent at school. I liked it. I didn't like the school I was at, mm-hmm. and I lived in a very remote place, you know, about 50 miles away from any other city Mm. um, in the middle of the mountains in Alberta. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't have a lot of friends because the place where I lived had like 15 houses and nobody, nobody my age. So I spent a lot of time alone. Okay. And what that encouraged in me was sort of viscerally independent streak Mm -hmm. that manifested itself to my parents in various ways. It's <laughs> a good way to look at that. Yeah. <laughs> I've apologized. <laughs> well, now you're a parent yourself, yeah. so. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, I've said, I, if I ever have a, a teenager like me, you know, because it's one thing to be sort of rebellious and to go out and drinking, but this sort of the independent streak was just, mm-hmm. it was too much. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so you went on, you studied religion, you, you were in Bible college, and that, and you yeah. decided to go further with it. I know, you know, particularly in your your graduate studies and your early career, you focused a lot on patristics yeah. and whatnot. What was it that drew you to that era and to that field within theology? So I went from the Bible college to the University of Waterloo in Ontario, and there I studied with a Greek Orthodox guy named Daniel Sahas, who did a lot of work on. Uh, John of Damascus. And I started studying through him Hesychasm, the Orthodox spirituality of Hesychasm. And so I was reading, you know, Gregory Palamas and reading all about the controversies that were happening. I was reading Simeon the New Theologian. And basically, I just started making my way back Mm. through all the people that had influenced them. And that got me really interested in Greek patristic thought. And for listeners and also myself, what, what yeah. is hesychas? Hesychasm. Hesychasm. Uh, it's the, basically the practice of the Jesus prayer. It comes from the Greek word hesychia, meaning silence. And it developed in the, well, the way it was practiced in the 13th century in, in Mount Athos, in uh, the, the main hub of monasticism and Eastern Orthodoxy. 
when the, the monks was were practicing it as a way to fulfill Jesus or Paul's commandment to pray without ceasing. Mm. And what they would attain, you know, they would pray the Jesus prayer. It would become part of their own breath and then would become part, uh, a prayer of the heart mm. so that they ended up praying it continually even while they were sleeping. And, it, and attaining to, some of them would attain to what they would call a vision of uncreated light. Hmm. And so it's this incredibly beautiful and pro- theologically profound, I think, spirituality that took seriously what doctrine, how doctrine could manifest itself in concrete ways in the spiritual life. And so the Orthodox theologian Vladimir Lossky, for example, you know, he wrote this book, which the title just perfectly encapsulates what I found so fascinating about hesychasm, which was, you know, the mystical theology of the Eastern Church, of the Orthodox Mm -hmm. Church. And so that's what it was about hesychasm that, that got me going. And so when I discovered that, it was always tied to spirituality for me that these guys weren't just articulating, you know, these weren't dry, unimportant arguments that they were having about matters of theology. They were absolutely central to their own spiritual life, to the life of prayer, to what it was to be a church. And so that's why I got interested in patristics. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and did that mode of spirituality become incorporated into your own spiritual practice at all? or Yeah, so I endeavor not always successfully um no, no judgment here yeah to find time i, I try every day to mm-hmm. find time to spend in silence praying the jesus prayer hmm. i have an orthodox prayer rope that i bought at the abbey of gethsemane actually <laughs> um, nice ecumenical moment yeah, yeah yeah exactly but also there's a there's a fantastic book about this that's written for Western audience by Martin Laird, who's at Villanova University. Hmm. And it's called Into the Silent Land. That is a great, you know, if anybody's interested in the way in which this kind of spirituality could be practiced in the here and now by lay people, including Western Christians, not mm-hmm. just Orthodox. He's an Augustinian monk. And Into the Silent Land is is probably the best book of prayer Hmm. I've ever read that specifically talks about what it could mean to contemplate and to pray with the Jesus prayer. Yeah. I'm curious, did your uh, high school excitement over Russian literature, has that in any way connected to or influenced your interest in Eastern Orthodoxy? Yeah. So I went from reading Dostoevsky to studying Hesychasm, and I started studying The Way of a Pilgrim, the 19th century. Yeah, I've read parts of that. Yeah, it's a wonderful book. That's Hesychasm, mm-hmm. right? He's just, he, he he's praying the Jesus prayer, you know, 30,000 times a day, 40,000 <laughs> times a day, right? And it becomes something, you know, it becomes part of his very being. And so, yeah, that got me interested in orthodoxy. Here's what got me interested in orthodoxy, really, was that, that professor I had, Charles Nienkirken, made us in uh, our church history class made us go to a tradition outside of our own mm-hmm. and and write about it. And so I was like, oh, hey, you know, downtown Calgary, there's this onion-domed church. <laughs> um, what is this place, right? So I went there, and, I mean, the whole thing was in Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. There were icons everywhere. I had no idea what was going on. Mm-hmm. I, I did kiss the Bible, as it were, the book of the Gospels mm-hmm. as it went by, because I saw everybody else was doing it. Mm-hmm. So I was like, all right, I better kiss this thing. Didn't want to stick out. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I didn't want to I'm sure you already out, did. <laughs> but I, I, was just, I was a skinny ginger dude at a Ukrainian Orthodox church. I pretty much stuck out. But, yeah, I know uh, it, it was something else. So I interviewed the pastor or the priest, I should say, there. And as I was preparing for that interview, I started reading about Orthodox spirituality. And so when I brought up the topic of uncreated light to him, his eyebrows sort of went up and he knew that I had actually been reading about mm-hmm. it. Um, so that's kind of what got me interested nice. in it. Yeah. And I like that assignment still. Yeah. I use it still in my yeah. classes. We, I had, um, in graduate school, I had a class with Paul Colbert on, um, like early Christian, I think, I don't remember if it was early Christian spirituality or early Christian monasticism. I know we read a lot of the monks as part of it. And one of the, it wasn't an official assignment. One of the things he really pushed us to do, though, was, you know, whoever we were reading for that week or whatever tradition we were reading for that week, try for that week to practice whatever their, you know, ascetic practice was to get yourself in the space in which they're writing. I don't know that I did a great job of it, but since there's a class at my school on spirituality where one of the assignments is built in is they're given a list of, I think, four or five ascetic practices at the beginning and they have to adopt that for the rest of the semester. And they write, you know, journals on it and they mm-hmm. have kind of group discussion on it. And there's there's always I mean, it's not all of them, but there's always a number of them who maintain that, you know, for some months or even years after the class ends. And it, it definitely shapes the experience of the, the material for them. And they want it. Yeah. When students get exposed to these spiritual disciplines, this is when actually theology becomes relevant to them. Mm-hmm. Even if they don't have any religious background at all, they're, they're clamoring, it seems to me, for some sort of meaning to their existence. And they're also, like all of us, but I think they're in particular, you know, brutally anxious. At least my students are. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's because I'm their prof, right? <laughs> you know, they're just very anxious people. And so yeah. when I start talking to them about spiritual disciplines, whether we're reading Merton or reading early Christians, writers about the spiritual disciplines, they get really interested in it. I think that's valuable. I think there's something, too, about there's a there's a concreteness and a particularity to certain practices or certain traditions that is attractive. And and I've been thinking about this in context of also, you know, earlier today I was talking to the people from other Benedictine universities yeah. and, and their experiences. And, you know, I think that in, in schools where there's a there's a clear sense of identity and mission but there's a sense of a particular charism it's not that everyone's going to buy into it that's yeah. not it but but there's something identifiable about it and you can say like that's what that means for that school or for that tradition and whether it's as something that i would adopt myself or even not in a bad way the kind of tourist you know like i want to learn something different approach there's something attractive about that yeah whereas I think for some students who go to sort of vaguely Catholic or vaguely Christian schools, there's a kind of generalized sense of something that there's nothing to grab onto, but there's a lot to resist against. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's helpful. That's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. So you are now at at Bellarmine University Uh in in Louisville, Kentucky, right? Yep. And so you're not far from the Abbey of Gethsemane, which you mentioned earlier. And I know... In recent years, a lot of your focus has shifted from patristic theology to Merton, Thomas Merton. Yeah. Was it was that primarily a function of being so close to the Abbey? Was it sort of a, a, a new trajectory of taking a monastic spirituality? Was it just being worn out with other material? Like, what was the... Well, 
I came to when I was applying for jobs. So my dissertation was on Cyril of Alexandria and on his pneumatology. I wanted again to to look at theology in relationship to spirituality. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what I had done with my disserta- dissertation. And like everybody else who's finishing their dissertation, I applied for like 50 jobs, mm-hmm. right? And what's interesting is is the only one of all those 50 that I ended up writing about in my in a, I keep a journal was Bellarmine huh. because its connection because of its connection to Thomas Merton. Okay. So in in um, in the 1960s he set up a trust where Bellarmine University became the official archive for all of his papers, hmm. his art, his poetry, his manuscripts, everything. And I had always wanted to visit. And so that was, you know, I was really excited about that. But was he was he someone you got into because, like, in college someone gave you Seven Story Mountain? So, or... here's, so here's how I got into him. <laughs> I got married pretty young at 23. I mean, I'm, Kim and I met when we were both 18. Mm-hmm. I graduated from the Baba College, and then we were going to go to the university. I was going to go to the University of Waterloo. We got married. A month later, we moved. At the time, we were Anglican. You know, mm-hmm. Episcopalian is what you Americans call it. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I really wasn't sure whether I was going to pursue the priesthood mm. or become an academic. And it sounds a bit dramatic to say that it was a vocational crisis, but it, mm-hmm. it was a little bit because yeah. all along I had thought I was going to be a professor. I, I wanted to do this. I wanted to do this. And then I started thinking... You know, the the idea of becoming a priest became more than just an idea. And so I I had the Cemetery Mountain on my shelf. I, I don't know why. I think I got it as a free book in a book club or something mm-hmm. like that. And I picked it up and I, I read it over Christmas of 1999 or 98. I can't remember. And that it just blew me away mm. because the book was about, for me anyways, it was about vocation. I knew I wasn't going to become a monk, right? At the time, I wasn't Catholic. Mm -hmm. But there was just something unbelievably reassuring to me that somebody's vocational crisis was resolved. Mm. And and so when he walks into the monastery and calls it the four walls of my new freedom, Hmm. I mean, I was just breathing heavily, you know, so excited for him that he had found a resolution to his Mm. crisis. So I started reading everything I could of his at the time. And then in a fit of sort of youthful exuberance, I got a, (laughs) I got a tattoo of a, of a drawing that he did of a monk. It's on my left shoulder. Um, I think it may have helped me get the job at Bellarmine actually. It's, I only mildly regret it. Yeah. That's not advice for other job candidates. Yeah. No, don't tattoo yourself. With, the, with you know, because you'll – I mean, if you do the number of interviews I did, you'll have a lot of tattoos. But And so I started reading everything of his. And so when I went for my interview at Bellarmine, I asked specifically for time to be able to spend in the Merton Center mm. so that I could read his journals, like the actual journals, mm-hmm. right? So I put on the white gloves and, and looked at it and whatnot. And – you know, as time has gone on, I've been at Bellarmine now for nine years. I've just been getting more and more interested in it, both for pedagogical and for my own research purposes. 
I teach classes on Merton and that can be a wonderful experiential opportunity for them. You know, we go down, you can go down to the corner of fourth and Walnut Mm -hmm. where Merton had his epiphany. We go down to the Abbey of Gethsemane. We go to Merton's hermitage. We talk with monks that knew him and they're given this exposure to, you know, I call him the patron saint of Bellarmine, even though he's not, you know, either a saint or, <laughs> or na- not named after, you know, the university is not named after him. But, you know, he, he shapes our life at Bellarmine University, mm-hmm. and he really shapes our department. And so, and I'd like him to shape students more. You know, you're talking about Benedictine schools. Well, here's Merton, somebody who is, is deeply immersed in the spiritual life, but sees that it has practical consequences in terms of dialogue, in terms of a, being pr- prophetic voices in a world of suffering. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm just, I love reading them. I love going, I go down to the Abbey pretty regularly. My kids go down to the Abbey pretty regularly. They know the monks there, and I love that that's part of their own experience. Are, are they reading Merton yet? The kids know. They do. Uh, my kids have nicknamed the tattoo Tom. <laughs> so when they see it, sometimes they'll sometimes they'll just say, say hi to me. And then if I don't have my shirt on, they'll say, oh, hey, Tom, you know, and they'll greet the monk on my shoulder. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder if there's like a, a Mer- like a, a Merton children's book out there or like a, the young adult Merton book or something. Actually, Dan Haran just wrote one. Oh yeah, yeah. Dan Haran just wrote. I haven't seen it yet, but it's a it's a kids book on Merton. Yeah, not surprised. Yeah, <laughs> good job, Dan. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. I remember. I have not read a lot of Merton, but I, I I was either in college or divinity school, and I read Seven Story Mountain, and I just remember hating it. Yeah, and I I. I, for the life of me, could not say now, 15 or whatever years later, what it was that made me so irritated by it. Yeah. But it, I just remember reading and thinking, like, I don't get why everyone loves this so much. Well, I, and, I've now read it. I don't mean to interrupt. No, no, please. I, I, I've now read it, I don't know, eight or nine times because I teach it. And so I try to reread it every time I teach mm-hmm. it. And I don't know why <laughs> I was so interested in it either. Merton himself ends up kind of rejecting it later mm. on. He, you know, he, he he basically says that, you know, he's glad he wrote it, mm-hmm. but he also doesn't recognize the person mm. in that book. Mm. And there, one of the best things about living in Louisville is every once in a while you'll meet people who met Merton. Mm-hmm. And so I, I talked with somebody who met Merton in a in a doctor's office which was pretty common merton mm-hmm. was a hypochondriac so <laughs> he was always in town uh going to doctor's offices and whatnot and this person looked at merton and said are you thomas merton and he says yes he said i read the seven story mountain it didn't make any sense to me <laughs> and merton just kind of looked at him and said it doesn't make much sense to me either anymore hmm. right and that's kind of his approach. I mean, he's a bit of a what I would call a Catholic bigot in mm-hmm. that book. He's filled with the sort of zeal of the convert. Mm-hmm. And, you know, none of that, I I don't remember reading any of that when I read it. Mm-hmm. I just remember that feeling of relief. Hmm. So I have students read it, but that's not the only thing I have yeah. to read. Yeah. It's interesting because, I mean, it's, I think for most people, it's, 
it's at least the introduction to Merton, if not yeah. probably the only Merton that they read. Yeah, and that's and, too bad. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I imagine, like, if I went to Barnes & Noble, I would find that and maybe New Seeds of Contemplation. Probably. And, yeah. And those, so those are actually two of my least favorite of his. <laughs> yeah. I do like New Seeds of Contemplation, but I also think, you know, it's not a great introduction to his mm-hmm. thought. I, I love reading his journals. Mm-hmm. He never... You know, he had a, a compulsion to write. He had to write. And so he kept journals pretty faithfully throughout his life. There's gaps here and there. Mm-hmm. But the the collected uh, editions of his journals are, se- you know, seven volumes Jeez. in length. There is a, a one-volume edition that I recommend to people. I mm-hmm. think they should start there. Mm. Because then you get the sort of authentic Merton. Now, he knew he was, they were probably going to get published. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, so there's this all, you know how much of it is writing is, for posterity. Is he, yeah. Is he yeah. writing for posterity? But even still, he's amazingly honest and forthright mm-hmm. in his reflections about his own self, his own self doubts, his critiques of other people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, these are all things that I love about him mm-hmm. it, it is his honesty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know I'm supposed to read conjectures of a guilty bystander. Yes. This summer for a, a group of friends who are getting together to yeah. discuss and my my wife has been reading through it and describes it as Merton's post-it notes. No, uh, it is. And, it's uh, <laughs> my favorite. It's actually my favorite book of his. And I mean, is it like his? Is it kind of stylistically like his journals in that re- respect? That it's kind of disjointed and. Uh, no, I mean his journals are chronological. Sure, but he took most of conjectures from the journals. Oh, okay. And reworked them, and and so there are five chapters. Mm-hmm. But they're very – my students don't like it because it's hard for them to understand what he's doing there. They are disjointed sections that are kind of loosely connected with one another. Mm-hmm. They're a little bit like a Jackson Pollock painting okay. where, you know, when – as you're looking at it, as the work, you know, as Jackson Pollock is actually doing the painting, you know, it looks just like a mishmash of mm-hmm. colors and – things but when you look at the painting at the end it all kind of comes together and that's a little bit merton was kind of just taking ideas and throwing them on the page yeah and i really like that i i think it's creative mm-hmm. and interesting and it allows him to be able to do everything in that book yeah there's you know we're here do, talking about ecology at the conference there's all kinds of ecological theology in there there's ecumenical theology there's reflections, honest reflections on Vatican II. There's a lot of critique of technology. I mean, it there is everything in that mm-hmm. book. Yeah. I mean, would it be fair to say that, you know, it's I mean, it's certainly not a book where there's, you know, a clearly structured argument. No. There's not a there's not a plot. No. But there's kind of like a a world that you're entering into. Yeah. Like it's kind of immersive in that way. It's completely immersive. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I can <laughs> I can see as a teacher why that would be frustrating for students yeah because it's sort of like what are you what are you supposed to write about for the paper from that yeah 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 all right they end up it it, it is a love-hate thing so the the students who love it really love it Mm -hmm. the students who hate it hate it more than anything in the world Hmm. but they also i think all come to the realization of how profound certain sections are yeah i think it's great Hmm. yeah nice one thing I want to go back to, I mean, if you're open to talking about it, is kind of your spiritual trajectory or your religious trajectory. Because you mentioned you grew up in, like, a, an evangelical kind mm-hmm. of family. 
at some point by Bible college, you were Episcopalian or Anglican. Yeah, uh, so uh, a little bit after that. Okay, a little bit after yeah. that. I know you are now Catholic. Uh-huh. Uh, I know you've written before about being in a, I think you call it an interchurch family. Yeah. I'm kind of wondering, like, what has been... I mean, I, I can I can imagine that some of it is, you know, your studies and your encounters and whatnot have, have shaped some of that. But I guess I'm curious about how you, in looking back, see the arc of that trajectory and what really shaped that for you. I guess you, it would be about 15 years ago as I was doing my uh, master's work and then into my doctoral work. I did my master's thesis on Augustine, and so I was really immersed in early Christianity and the thing that you can't the the thing that you always encounter in patristic theology is the emphasis on a unity fostered by communion Mm -hmm. and so I thought for a long time that I could read that through the lens of being Anglican and you can Mm mm-hmm what I came to realize, I guess, about 13 years ago was was that I was sacramentally, ecclesiologically, and theologically Roman Catholic. <laughs> and It just snuck up on you. Yeah. No, I, it kind of did, actually. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember the exact moment when I realized this, but I do remember speaking to my wife and basically saying, I think I'm Roman Catholic in the way that I approach everything now. And and so it wasn't anything in the Anglican church that pushed me out. Mm-hmm. Like I wasn't I didn't find anything distasteful or problematic or I loved it. Mm-hmm. I actually loved being Anglican. I was a lay reader, so I was able, uh, I was commissioned by the bishop to be able to preach. I preached at my son's baptism, my oldest son's baptism, you know, I love the community that we were a part of. My problem is is that I I was having a harder and harder time being something outwardly when I was something else inwardly. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Kim and I had long conversations about this because she had and has no inclination to become a Roman Catholic. She's very happy mm-hmm. as an Episcopalian. And so she very, you know, I mean, very graciously at one point just kind of said, you know, I think you need to do this, knowing full well that it was going to bring about complications Mm -hmm. in our family. Mm -hmm. And so I was received on Pentecost in 2007. So I just, it's just, it's been 10 years now. And, you know, it was hard Mm -hmm. because honestly, Catholic liturgy is worse than Anglican liturgy. (laughs) Um, oh, that depends on the parish. It does, I depa- mean, yeah. it does depend on the parish. <laughs> but, you know, I, I mean, in some ways, liturgically, I was taking a step down. There were uh, certain aspects of Catholicism that I had and have a difficult time with. Mm-hmm. And, and at the same time, it was wonderful to be able to be who I really was theologically. And my wife and I have... Uh, you know, we continue to work out how this can how this plays out in our own family structure. Mm-hmm. With you know, we have three boys, mm-hmm. all of whom are baptized in the Anglican Church, and my oldest is going to go through the process of confirmation in the Roman Catholic Church. Mm. 
and kind of making that decision on his own. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's complicated, but it's also wonderful. Yeah. You know, I wrote a thing for America about this, and I, I think families like ours are a great gift to the church because in our family, we realize the unity that we will one day all share. Mm -hmm. The unity that is actually there, whether we want to recognize it mm -hmm. or not. And so I think we're a witness to the church. And I wish the church would recognize that more concretely. Yeah. In my in my own family, I mean, I wasn't raised Catholic. I entered in the church when I was in college. And my wife, her family, her father, was a, when she was growing up, was a lapsed Catholic. He's now a come-home Catholic. Right. I think that's how they talk about him. But her mom's entire side is all, you know, Church of Christ, you know, Paige's grandfather was a Church of Christ preacher. Her uncle is a Church of Christ preacher. A bunch of her cousins are Church of Christ preachers. I mean, it's just very yeah. heavily involved. And 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 Paige eventually became Catholic and and had this year where she was she was going through RCIA, but she was also periodically preaching at this Church of Christ right. church in Boston and kind of reflecting on that experience. And 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 this is in a way. I don't think because of her, I necessarily, but even in the rest of her family, there's these kind of this uh, expanding diversity where, you know, some go to the more conservative Church of Christ, some go to the more liberal Church of Christ, some go to the Catholic Church. And so they, they at least back in Indiana, they have this almost ritual of they all meet at Panera in the morning and have, you know, coffee and bagels and whatnot and chat. And then they all kind of spread out to their different churches and parishes to celebrate and it's a really kind of wonderful and strange thing yeah um, but it is a way of sort of the you mentioned earlier, the, the unity and communion they're they're trying to find ways to, to to have that unity amidst you know divisions that are not easily reconcilable yeah no it's it's difficult and honestly when I became a Roman Catholic neither Kim nor I really foresaw the complications when it comes to our children. Mm -hmm. How do we raise them to have an appreciation of both the, the Episcopal tradition and the Roman Catholic tradition in such a way that, you know, Merton has this line in Conjectures where, you know, he, he advocates dialogue, 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 but also recognizes that there are real differences mm -hmm. and that he always wants to avoid what he calls syncretism and differentism yeah. and the folly and this isn't an exact quote but the folly of affirming everything while thinking of nothing yeah right and so you know i want our kids to recognize that there are real differences here and and to appreciate those differences and also i, I want them to continue on in the faith mm -hmm. i also don't want to shove it down their throats yeah and so you know how do we how do we raise them to be faithful in a tradition it's complicated it's also kind of exciting but yeah. it's complicated yeah i imagine also being close to the the abbey and having your kids be immersed in that in a certain sense like like i i i mean it, to me it goes back to the sort of the attraction of the particularity and particularity as a way of encountering the universal I just think of it this way because I'm writing about David Tracy right yeah. now, and that's his recurring line. Well, what but, we've what we've tried to do is is take a mystagogical approach mm -hmm. with our kids rather than 
you know, their catechesis is mystagogical. They get theology for me because it's what I do. Right. And and so they're all we're always going to be talking about those sort of things. But they also get the opportunity to regularly pray with the monks mm-hmm. at the abbey, to go hiking with them, mm-hmm. to go to Merton's Hermitage, to hike with a guy in a habit. Mm-hmm. Right. And <laughs> and and to have that be part of their own experience, right? And and so, you know, I think that that is the way that Kim and I have navigated this. Mm-hmm. It is 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 by giving them a rich liturgical and ecclesial experience in both traditions. Yeah. Uh, something I wanted to come back to was teaching. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned that you had you know long desired to be a teacher and. You know, there was at least a moment of vocational crisis where, you know, you're between maybe the, the Anglican priesthood or going to be an academic, academic. I'm curious, and you've talked a lot about teaching Merton and, and working with your students. What is it that you think, or how would you describe your strengths as a teacher? What are the things that you think that you do well, that you communicate well, or that you model well with your students? When I first got to Bellarmine, I really thought teaching was about lecturing I had gone to a public school where the some of the classes for undergrads when I was a TA had 400 students. Jeez. And so you can't really get discussion going in those kind of things. So I, when I first started teaching, I I lectured all the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm good at it. I, you know, I'm good at, <laughs> I'm good at just telling people what I think and whatnot. And in some ways, students reacted well to that because mm-hmm. it's a very passive way to learn. Mm-hmm. And, and But the problem with that is it is a passive way to learn. And yeah. So, you know, I'm good at lecturing and I'm, and I'm good at talking. I'm less good but at getting better at promoting discussion. And so, for example, in my Merton class now, I don't come in with... I have no lectures planned for the Merton class. Mm-hmm. That isn't... I, I literally just come into class and I ask some questions and see where the discussion takes us. And that's actually a much more exciting way for me to teach. And lately, what students have been saying on course evaluations... I mean, we all know what we think of course evaluations. <laughs> but but the, the constructive things that I find really helpful... And the things that students have been saying more and more is that they felt like they could articulate their ideas and have it be listened to both by me and their fellow students. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to say I'm getting better at that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a valuable thing. You know, if I'm going to talk about Merton and Merton's understanding of dialogue, there better be dialogue in the classroom. And I didn't do that when I first got to Bellarmine. Mm -hmm. You know, just had no idea. Mm-hmm. Right. We're not trained in these things. Right? <laughs> I know how to read a text. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is that or, or like, uh, I mean, I know how to do a seminar. Yeah. You know, but like yeah. I don't get to do seminars with undergrads yeah. by and large because yeah. it's too many of them. And, yeah. and you know, early, you have to, this is the thing that I've been learning in the last several years is that if I, if I do a better job of establishing the expectations early on in terms of what to read, how to read, how to prepare for class, I get better returns. But even though, I mean, they're, they're, they're not perfect returns. I mean, 
it's I'm getting, you know, I'm getting half the students to be engaged instead of maybe a third of the students. And so there's that. And there's also, you know, I, I <laughs> in, in terms of, you know, what we were prepared for, prepared for in graduate school, like there was always this kind of assumption that like, I mean, if you didn't want to be in grad school, you didn't have to be there. Like, yeah. I, I mean, you could, you could, you could go. Uh, you're there because you want to be there. You're there because you find this stuff interesting. Like that is not the reality with a lot of undergrads. No, because I mean I know a lot of what I teach are the you know the the gen eds kind of service courses Same. that they have to do, and they're great experiences. And it's where I get to like most of the students that I know really well are people I had when they were freshmen or sophomore or things like that. But they're also now the people who are like they. I I, I struggle on this question of is it you know, how much of it is they like my classes because though they like my personality, I'm just someone who gets along with their style or is it, they found something interesting in what we were talking about that might stay with them. I don't have an answer to that, but yeah, I, I had a class last this in the fall semester. We always do probably the same thing at St. Leo with they, every student has to do an intro theology class. Yeah. And so I had two sections. Yeah, Yeah, I had two sections of an intro theology class. And the first section, I I mean, I just couldn't get them (laughs) interested in everything. They seemed to say in the course evaluations that they did find it interesting, Mm -hmm. but they didn't manifest that in the classroom itself. The second class I had, and they were back-to-back, they couldn't get enough. Mm. And they were asking... They felt free to ask any and all questions, and and they didn't. They were happy just being able to discuss those. So we were way behind, mm-hmm. but it was wonderful, mm-hmm. right? And I want to know what I did for that second <laughs> for that second class. And that's the thing is, I know that I didn't. You know, different classes have different personalities. Yeah. but I do know that the one thing I have control over is articulating very clearly and frequently that they have to and and should feel absolutely free to ask and articulate anything Mm -hmm. because we can't we can't take for granted i i was going to say anymore i don't think we ever could but we can't take for granted that they have any kind of faith formation yeah. or even any interest in the faith. Yeah. And so for this to be something that is of worth to them, uh, of value to them, they have to be able to articulate the questions of ultimate meaning to mm-hmm. them. And, and, and so in that second class they did. Yeah. And it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of our, one of our gen ed courses is, kind of designed to be like a, a faith and reason kind of course, right? It was a great, great topic, great question, lots of thinking to do. And what I realized after I taught it for the first semester is my, my students had no biblical literacy. Yeah. They, like they didn't, they, they knew, they knew that Noah had a boat <laughs> right? and they'd heard of Jesus. And, and so they had these like very basic things but they'd never read Genesis 6 through 9. They'd never thought about any of the things going on in it or the significance of it and the, or the idea of covenant or whatnot. And I, I, I've successfully, successively, not successfully, uh, every semester I've been retooling this class to try to figure out what is the balance of, you know, what the course is intended to be about and what kind of 
background I have to build up with them. And I, I mean, I've taught this course seven, eight semesters now and I, like I'm close, you know, but it's still, I don't know. It's still just trying to crack what it is that I think that they need. I start with absolute basics. Yeah. And actually we read, you know, it's supposed to be an introduction to Christian theology. Now the complicating thing, all of our schools, including Catholic universities, is that a lot of our students are not only not Catholic, but they're, they come from other traditions, other religious traditions. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's kind of, how do we do a class on Christian theology when I've got a Hindu and a Muslim Mm -hmm. student, you know, there? Well, what I, I mean, we start with Rowan Williams's book, Tokens of Trust, which is a mm. very basic but also very profound articulation of the creed. What is, what is the very basics? Mm. And then we spend just a little bit of time there, and then we just start make, you know, we have this, I, I think it might be a, a Canadianism, but, uh, <laughs> and then we just, we make hay, right, with that. <laughs> we take those basic building blocks and then we develop those building blocks in different ways, looking at liberation theology, black liberation theology, eco-theology, feminist theology, theology in the context then of interreligious dialogue mm-hmm. and of, of a recognition of, a, of like, say, Nostra Aetate, mm-hmm. right? And that seems to work all right. Yeah. But you have to do the basics. Yeah. Otherwise, you just don't have any building materials to mm-hmm. work with. Yeah, I've been. What I've done with that that class in particular is I've, I I eventually boiled it down to the two things I want to cover in this course that I want you to have when you leave are some idea of what we mean by the image of God, mm-hmm. not just in terms of anthropologically like the human, but like just the way people have different images of God, like what what paintings they draw, and then the question of interpretation and how we interpret, um, and kind of in a similar vein, like I use Elizabeth Johnson's Quest for the Living God. And I've had really good success with that where I pair that with just like a chapter from scripture. Yeah. Like each chapter gets its own one. It's like how, what, what image of God is this chapter operating with and how does that shape your reading of, you know, this passage from scripture. And that's the thing that seems to be working, which, which based on, based on the syllabus I was giving when it started, like I have diverged pretty widely, but it's working. Yeah. So yeah. I'm not going to fight it. No, exactly. So, but yeah, no, the other thing I was thinking about when you were talking was the, the, the personality of the class. And, you know, I often get two sections back to back or I had this class this last year. It's another one of our gen ed courses and it's on the history of Christian teaching about salvation. So we do scripture and origin and Augustine and Aquinas and, and whatnot. And it was, it was one of the liveliest classes I've ever had. Hmm. And I, I wouldn't say it was one of the best prepared classes I've ever had. I mean, there were people who read and people who didn't. And there was a course pack, and that factors into it. And the, they brought a lot of passion to it and to the questions that it raised. And they did a good job of, like, of trying to place themselves in the minds of the authors to understand, like, what commitments the authors had or what their readings of scripture were. And it was this very affirming experience in the classroom mm. for a class that is often very difficult to teach at our, on our campus. I would imagine. So, yeah, yeah, there was the, the previous time I taught it, there was a lot, well, there, there were, there were more fundamentalist students who didn't like how all these theologians were ruining the Bible. <laughs> right. And then there were the people who were just 
very maybe a little judgmental of one another in mm-hmm. terms of you're going to hell, you're going to hell. And we we use the who's going to hell, who's not as a rhetorical device, which I think works well this semester, but sometimes that can go really awry. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Anyway, one last kind of bigger question I had before we finish with our famous questionnaire is, you know, I mean, you're, you're teaching several classes. You have a fairly active, like, research and writing program going. How, for you, do those support one another? How do you balance those? Like with family? Also with that, yeah. 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 But even just in a matter of like, I mean, sometimes for me this question is just a a selfish, like, how is it that you get your work done uh, kind of thing? Because I'm always a little bit flailing. Well, I I don't think I have the key to this, but I, I, I am a, I'm very rigid with my schedule. That's both a good and a bad thing. My wife doesn't always love that about Mm -hmm. me. But I'm, but that's kind of how I work. So I get to the office at 8 every day, always. And I always have blocked off at least two and a half hours, hopefully three, just writing. Mm. So 8 basically to 11. I block that off of my calendar. Nobody can book an appointment with me. There's nothing, you know, I, I my door is shut and I'm just doing activities related to writing Mm. when i'm done that then i do course prep and grading and everything like that but if i don't have that every day i find writing to be a little bit like you know pushing a boulder up a hill if you don't have momentum it's really hard Mm -hmm. to just keep starting over and over again and so i need to push that boulder up a little bit every day or it's just not going to move mm. ever, and so that's that's how I do that. I then I work till four thirty, and I come home, and I never take work home. Mm. I never do work on the weekends. That's the trade off for me having a rigid schedule. Yeah, that what that means is that I have to then on those times I I, I have to and I want to be present mm-hmm. at home with my kids with Kim and whatnot. Yeah, if if I take work home. I'm too tempted to do it. Mm. And then I become distracted. Yeah. So that's kind of how I work. And have you been able to do that for years? Was there a, yeah. a certain point when you, oh, was it, was it like a certain point when you figured out that's what worked for you or? Yeah. When I had a, when I, when I, my oldest was born, <laughs> when all of a sudden I realized that, yeah, my time was not my own anymore. Mm-hmm. And so he was born while I was writing my dissertation. Mm. Actually, he was born two weeks after I, I wrote my comprehensive exams, my last set of <laughs> comprehensive exams. You know, Kim had a practice as a massage therapist, her own practice. And so we were trading off childcare duties during the week. And so I had to make a very rigid schedule in terms of how I was going to get mm-hmm. this dissertation written. And that just then has continued on as, mm-hmm. I've, as I've, you know, when I got a job and, yeah. and how I operated that way. Not everybody works with a great, you know, a rigid schedule, but yeah. it's it's how my mind works. Nice. Mm-hmm. No, that's helpful. The real advice I'm getting here, though, is I need to have a kid to, uh, <laughs> compel me to better manage my. Well, time. there is there is the, the dissertation child. I don't yeah. know if you've heard of this, but yeah, yeah, the dissertation child that does help get things uh, get, get things going, and it certainly did with me. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. 
So to wrap up, I have a five closing questions, typically of a less serious variety. My first is, this is one I stole from a, a writing podcast I mentioned to you earlier. He always asks, which is, what is the best thing that you have read lately? Book, article, could be any news story, you know. Let's see. I read a book last week called Baseball Life Advice. Nice. And it's by a journalist named Stacy Mae Fowles, who she's Canadian. And the book is, it, it kind of came out of her experience of falling in love with baseball mm -hmm. and her own experience of falling in love with baseball came out of some traumatic experiences she had in terms of sexual assault mm. and PTSD that resulted from that and deep sense of anxiety really anxiety disorder is what she developed understandably mm -hmm. and baseball became this solace for her so that when she would she could be anxious all the time, but when she would go to the ballpark for three hours, she wasn't. Hmm. And so it's a collection of essays. I mean, it just came out, I think, last month. It's a collection of essays. Basically, it's it's like a an ode to baseball, really, and what it could mean for her. Nice. And so that was a that was a real pleasure to read. Actually, it didn't hurt that she's a Blue Jays fan. <laughs> Uh, as I am. And so the subject of the book, you know, uh, the Blue Jays come up in every chapter, which is pretty great. But yeah, I, I read that and I, I just I just absolutely loved that. Nice. It's not a theological book. No, no, doesn't need to be. But it was, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. This actually nicely leads me into my second question, which is if you were going to canonize one baseball player, who yeah. would that be? That's an easy one for me, but it's not a popular one. It's it's definitely Jose Bautista. Mm -hmm. He is hated in by basically all twenty nine other teams <laughs> other than the Blue Jays. But just because of the bat flipping, or <laughs> yeah, he's just so you know he's very competitive, mm -hmm. and he leaves you know everything out there. His aggravations, his frustrations, his joy, his you know his sense of exhilaration. Mm -hmm. So he's just a very emotive player. and He's kind of the Gaudium et Spes yes. of players. And they, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And, and that's not very popular in baseball, mm. right? There's this whole tradition of having a sort of stoic approach so that if you hit a, if you hit a home run, you just run the bases very politely, mm -hmm. you know, having won this small battle with the, with the pitcher. But that's not how it is in the Latin America. Mm -hmm. And that's not how he is. That's not how Jose Bautista is. So I love his passion. And that bat flip, I mean, I have a t-shirt. <laughs> honestly, I brought it to this conference. I have a t-shirt of the bat flip. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the other thing I like about him is, despite the fact that he's, you know, as a player sort of hated, as a person, I think... It, Everybody sees that he's a pretty class act. Mm -hmm. So when he went, you know, when he was doing rehab stints with AAA Buffalo last year, you know, he knew he was making way more money than these minor leaguers. And so every night he bought meals, bought the after dinner mm -hmm. supper for his team and the guys on, huh. the, on the other team. Huh. Right? You know, he recognizes he and, and he's great. I'm, I actually met him once. He came to Louisville, uh -huh. 
and he was doing the uh, University of Louisville's baseball team's kickoff dinner. Mm. And so, of course, we all went. The whole family <laughs> went. And I, I wanted to meet him so bad, and I wanted my kids to get an autograph. And my nine-year-old, who's just an insane baseball fan and a huge Bautista fan, wanted to meet him. Mm-hmm. So I ended up sneaking him into the room where Jose <laughs> Bautista was signing autographs. So, yeah, we met him, and, you know, we have two signed baseballs and a signed baseball card. And Is there a shrine in the house? Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a great big Bautista poster in my nine-year-old's bedroom, and the, the baseball's there. The signed baseball card is there. And, yeah. That's awesome. So he's great, and I'll miss him if he ever leaves Toronto. Mm-hmm. I think he's wonderful. You won't turn and hate him, though. No, I think okay. he's wonderful. Good. Yeah. Good, good, good. Number three, as a dyed-in-the-wool and proud Canadian, what would be? What would you recommend as your favorite Canadian cuisine? Hmm. Or another way, like if I were to go you know, visit anywhere in Canada, yes. where it's like, where should I eat? All right. So this is not going to be supper. Okay. This is – you're going to go to Quebec City in the middle of winter. Okay. Which sounds horrible and is. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm really drawn in so far. <laughs> <laughs> and, but this is what you're going to do. You're going to go to the, uh, the Winter Festival in Quebec City. And one of the things that they'll do is they'll actually put on the street a long trough filled with snow. And then they'll take heated maple syrup and they'll pour it, uh, a line of it, on the snow. And then they'll take a stick and roll it up. And what that, with the, the heated maple syrup on the snow becomes, is basically maple syrup toffee. Wow. And so you roll it up and you basically get like a toffee popsicle of maple syrup. <laughs> And it's ama- it's it's worth going to Quebec City in the winter to have. All right. Yeah. I, I will probably do this someday. That sounds amazing. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> Number four, what is your favorite or your least favorite liturgical song? In terms of my least favorite, anything by Marty Hogan makes me want to peel my ears off. Okay. I just don't like it. I don't know why. It just doesn't hit me and i'm sorry if he's listening Uh, (laughs) probably not (laughs) no but i I, and i'm sorry if anybody's a fan but uh you know for me i don't like them i don't like the lyrics i don't like the tunes none of that i i just love my very favorite liturgical experience is actually at the abbey at compline Mm. they have a hymn that they sing before the you know at the very beginning of of compline that's i think it's a traditional hymn but it's gorgeous you know before the ending of the day creator of the lord we pray i don't remember right now mm-hmm. unless i sing it i don't remember sure, it sure. but it but it's basically about entrusting ourselves to god's care over the night and the the way it's chanted mm-hmm. and in the dark at the abbey is just wonderful and so actually we sing it as a family before bed you know i sing it with my kids yeah this hymn and then of course they end with the salve regina nice and i love that so that's not a it's not a eucharistic liturgical experience but those are my favorite nice Mm -hmm. that's great last question if someday in the future by some miracle 
you should be elected pope. Hmm. What would your pope name be? Hmm, that's a good one. I was going to say Hadrian because I was reading not long ago <laughs> Fa- Father Rolf's Hadrian the Seventh. Have you ever read that book? No. So he's this guy, Frederick Rolf, who got rejected from seminary. He's in, like this 19th century, maybe early 20th century. I can't remember his dates. Writer and very eccentric. And so he actually shortened his name from Frederick to FR. Dot. <laughs> So that so that he he got frustrated by this uh, by not being able to be a priest. So now he just goes by Father Rolf, mm-hmm. even though he's not it was neither that uh, not a father. And he, the the book Hadrian the Seventh is about a conclave that can't pick a pope, and so one of them has the idea to go and pick this guy who's surprisingly been rejected from seminary mm. lives in england has all these ideas and picks the name hadrian the seventh mm-hmm. but no i probably wouldn't do that that would be too uh <laughs> is that the book that's like the young pope is largely riffing off of because there's one where or like i mean i know the mechanics of that are a little different but like in the show the young pope it's this the sort of unexpected yeah. like they thought he was one way and whatnot and yeah maybe i don't know i haven't i haven't seen if there's any connections there okay. or not Honestly, my my confirmation name is Benedict, mm. and I chose that for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, we lived through a time as theologians when probably the greatest theologian pope ever in the history of mm-hmm. the church existed, right, with mm-hmm. Benedict the Sixteenth. You know, he was a he an incredible mind. And then when you think that the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time was Rowan Williams. Mm-hmm. I mean, two of the greatest theologians of the 20th and 21st centuries were Archbishop of Canterbury and the Pope of Rome. <laughs> and so I, ha- I had and have immense admiration for Benedict as a theologian. Mm-hmm. But I also like the name Benedict for uh, Benedict of Nursia. Mm-hmm. And I took that, that name as my confirmation name because Benedict's feast day is the same day as my, the day I was married. Oh, and I thought if I was abandoning my wife's church, the least I could do was take a, a confirmation name of a, that somewhat commemorated her anyways. So that is a great reason. We'll go with Benedict. That's fantastic. I'll be Benedict the 17th. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Great. Thanks so much for doing this. this yeah, was fun. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo. 